And so what does that mean? A couple things we want to tell you about. We, if you're visiting, we break from our sermon series, which we're in Luke. We break from that, and we do messages on Advent. So let me just give you a little overview. What does that mean, Advent? Typically, Advent is four weeks. You might have grown up in a, in a home that you celebrated Advent. Maybe you had an Advent calendar. Maybe you had an Advent wreath and some candles. We'll touch on those in just a moment. <clears throat> but Advent, from the Latin word adventus, which means coming. Okay, And there's two aspects of coming that we talk about. The first coming is when Jesus came the first time. That's when the Lord came 2,000 years ago. And then the second coming is when he returns. Four weeks. Why four weeks? Well, typically, this is the way it's, it's framed. There's 400 years. So every week represents a year, uh, 100 years. And there's 400 years between the old, 425 to be close to or exact, but between the old and the New Testament. So the four weeks represent that time frame. Okay? Now, what about that thing over there? It's full of symbolism, and it's too much to explain, but just a few brief things to touch on. The candles, that makes certain sense, that Jesus is the light of the world. The light of God has come into a dark world. So we have the candles for that. The wreath, the circle nature of the wreath, speaks of a number of things. We won't talk about the construction of the evergreens and the pine cones and all, but just the circle nature speaks of the eternality of God. There is no beginning and there is no end, and also the immortality of the soul. There's a lot of different denominations and different ways to frame out the individual candles. What we do here, it's really simple, and it's somewhat typical. There's three purple, a pink, and a white. The white you can figure out is Jesus, right? We do that one on Christmas Day. But for these candles here, the first purple candle is the candle of hope, the candle of prophecy. And that was the one that we lit last week. The second one is preparation, preparing your hearts for the coming Lord. The, the pink one is the candle of joy, the joy to the world, joy of Christmas. And then the fourth one is the candle of love. And all this is designed to do is to help us think about what this season is all about. Because even us in the church, and me in particular, you just get so busy doing good things for God, you just you forget about it. So I, I break from the sermon series for that reason and for no other reason for me, so that I can really focus on, on, on this season. And many people comment on it and are thankful for that, so that we can center our hearts on home. So we're here. This is week two. This is our second message on Advent, we have two more coming, and then a very, very, very special Christmas Eve uh, message this year, unlike we've ever done before. I'll give you the title. It's called Listen to Linus, but that's all I can tell you today. <clears throat> today, well, I know you thought of a, a movie, but I'll probably venture to guess you'll think of a movie here on today's title, The Who of Christmas, all the who's down in Whoville, the young and the old. No, no, it's not the who's in Whoville. This is the real who of Christmas. Last week, we looked at the when of Christmas. So today, we're going to look at the who of Christmas. And who is that? We're going to look at it. There's a lot of places we could go, but we'll camp out for a little bit in Revelation. So you can open your Bibles to chapter 5, 1 to 6, 9 to 13. But I want to give you a quote first before we start. And this quote was said in 1980 by Francis Schaeffer, 
who was in a lecture with C. Everett Koop. You may remember, if you're old enough, you remember C. Everett Koop, right, as the Surgeon General of the United States. And they were on a lecture uh, board together. And many at the time when Schaefer, and many of you know who Schaefer is, great apologist, great, great visionary, but when Schaefer said these words, people thought he was just trying to be startling or, or profound and, and to get people's attention. I'll ask you today, is, is that what happened? Is that what he was doing, or was there something really to these words? You ready? These are the words of Francis Schaeffer in 1980 in this country. The day is coming in the West when the name of Jesus would not be recognized by the average young person, and if it were recognized, not a single historical fact about him would be known. Has that come true? Profound, prophetic, and true. The name of Jesus today is associated with what? A curse word. That's how it's used. Not a historical fact. Most people in in this generation, no idea. And that's what we're going to look at today. Deeply. The who of Christmas. Revelation 5, 1 to 6, here now. The word of God. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. And then down to verse (coughs) 9. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering 10,000 times (coughs) 10,000. Excuse me. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. (coughs) And may God add his rich blessing to his inspired and errant and infallible word. Let's pray. Father. We are here this morning by divine design. Everyone here coming in search, not the imagination of a man, but the revelation of God. May your word go forth from this pulpit. Make it a word of salvation for the unsaved, comfort for those in storm winds, and rest for the tired, weary, and heavy laden. Give us ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts that beat for nothing smaller than the Lord Jesus Christ. Come. Now fount of every blessing, unclutter our minds and unburden our hearts that we might see Jesus and Him only. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said. The Who of Christmas, three headings, and then we'll make it very personal at the end. Ready? Number one, what do historians say? Number two, what does Scripture say? Number three, what does Jesus say? And then we'll close with really the most important question of all. What do you say? 
A couple things in the passage. We don't have time to unpack the whole passage. It just kind of gives you the framework of the who. But let me just unpack a little bit of it. The word scroll is an important word for us to see. The scroll really means a number of things. It can mean the law, the covenant, the promises of God, the purposes and the plan. But I'll give you the parallel. It's a powerful parallel from Daniel 12.4. But you, Daniel, listen to this, close up and seal. You know what that means? That's a supernatural safekeeping. Close up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. And what is that time? To preserve it in an unaltered state until the time of fulfillment. And what was the time of fulfillment? Right then, when Jesus had come. So that's the promise. That's the promise of God. That's, that's what that scroll is, is telling us in that passage in Revelation. And one more thing to touch on. Go to verse 5 and, and look at the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's important to touch on that as well, the root of David. Lions are symbolic of a number of things, and you can think of them all by yourself. You don't need biblical help for that. They're symbolic of, of strength and power and courage and boldness. But obviously there's more. It's a very apt symbol of the warrior kings of Judah and the Davidic line. But obviously there's more. So we'll go back to Genesis 49, 9 to 10, and we'll see this in these words. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. The scepter will not depart from Judah or the ruler's staff from between his feet. And there's the prophecy of the lion who was to come. And that lion was fulfilled in Christ. Okay? So, let's go now and head out into some deep water and let our nets down for a catch. Number one. What do historians say about the who of Christmas? Number one, he's a myth. So let's take a look at a myth. What, first of all, what is a myth? Let's see it defined. A legendary, fictitious, folklore character made up an, of an, by an ignorant, lower-class culture to claim to calm fear and to bring comfort. Okay, did you hear that? Okay, so let me describe you again. Made up by an ignorant, lower-class culture to calm fear and to bring comfort. That's you, me, and those who believe in this mythical figure, so they say. I want to give you a couple quotes, just if we could give you hundreds and hundreds and hundreds under every heading, but we're just going to give you a couple, just to give you a sense of where we are. Let's go back to the great British philosopher and historian, brilliant mind. Bertrand Russell wrote the book, Why I'm Not a Christian. If you haven't read it, it's worth a read. Had all of our children read those books. Remember, you know what uh, Zig Ziglar would say? Zig Ziglar would get up in the morning, and he'd go to his table. And on his table, he'd have the morning newspaper, and he'd have the Bible. And people would ask him, well, how come you have both there? He says, well, I get up and I read both. That way I know what both sides are thinking. Listen, if you don't know what the other side's thinking, how are you going to minister to them? How are you going to talk to them? How are you going to know where they are? It's a great book, why I'm not a Christian. But listen to these words. Remember, he's a historian. Historically, it is quite doubtful whether Christ ever existed at all. And if he did, we do not know anything about him. Now, let me just add to that. Virtually no one today in scholarship would agree with that. He's back from the late 1800s. 
hundreds, in the early 1900s. And no one would be in agreement. There isn't any scholar today who would deny the actual existence, that Jesus was actually a myth. Bloggers and chat rumors do that. But that, you don't have to be concerned with them. But no one really denies that. But let me give you one more. This is, this is a guy from 1940 to 2009. C. Dennis McKenzie. He's an American author, atheist. He, wrote, he, got, he started well on the, on the title of his book, Biblical Inerrancy. From a critical perspective, that's what he wrote. Ready for these words? Jesus is a mythical figure in the tradition of pagan mythology. And almost nothing in all of ancient literature would lead one to believe otherwise. Anyone wanting to believe Jesus lived and walked as a real live human must do so despite the evidence, not because of it. So there are millions who believe that Jesus is a myth, but no longer at the scholarship level. What about a man? Was he a man? Let's take a look. Josephus, no one questions the writings of first century Jewish, started Jewish, Roman historian Josephus. In his antiquities, which by the way, in 1971, 1971, an Arabic passage was discovered that matched beautifully with, with these words. This is the writings of Josephus. Listen to these words, claiming that Jesus was indeed a a man. At this time, there was a wise man called Jesus. His conduct was good and virtuous, and many people from among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified, and his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Nobody questions the writings of Josephus. He confirms that Jesus was a real man. He confirms he was condemned by Pilate. He confirms he was crucified, dead, and buried. Now, he doesn't himself confirm that Jesus rose from the dead, but what does he say? They reported that he appeared to them. So here's historical, unquestioned, documented evidence of the real man, Jesus. Let me give you one more. From an atheist, historian, but he knew enough of the truth. Remember H.G. Wells, War of the Worlds? Remember him? I am a historian, he writes. I am not a believer. But I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. Now, what people will say, well, he was a real man. But he was a real man with this huge God complex. So we have people think he's a myth. People think he was a man. You have one more category. Only going to give you one. And from a guy from the 1800s, church historian, Schaeff, Dr. Philip Schaeff. Standing on this rock, I feel safe against all the attacks of infidelity. The person and work of Christ is the greatest and surest of all facts, as certain as my own existence. So there's three categories. Yes? Jesus was a myth. He was a man. He was Messiah. Okay? So that's, that's what history tells us. And there are countless, countless documented quotes, articles, position papers under each heading. Okay? So that's what historians say. 
What does Scripture say? I'm going to show you a typical passage that we go to at this time. The other, I'm going to show you one that's not typical. Isaiah. Do you know what Isaiah is known for? How many Gospels do we have in, this, in the Scriptures? Say, say the number four. Say it. Four. Um, mm. Ah, I got you. And you're all on video, too. You're being live streamed. Do you know that Isaiah, Isaiah is known as the fifth gospel? Did you know that? Do you know why? Because there is so much of the Messiah in Isaiah. So scholarship has, has put it under the category of the fifth gospel. It is so rich in prophecy of the coming Christ. I'm just going to give you one. Remember, 700 years before, okay? Let's just give you one. Isaiah 7, 14, the Lord will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. If you've been to the shows, we're, we're, we're acting that out. That's being performed right before your eyes. In fact, Mary is here today. Raise your hand so they can see you. This is Mother Mary. And she comes down the aisle with Joseph in the back. Joseph, raise your hand. See Joseph in the back? There he is. And we act that out. So here we have a virgin, a virgin who, who, who has been prophesied that will give birth to the promised Messiah. Now, d- does it happen? Well, we have a fulfillment in the New Testament. So let's take a look. Matthew 1, 18, 22, and 23. His mother Mary, this, this is, you can get all of this outside of Scripture. His mother Mary was pledged to be married. That means they're not married yet. So the term would be no. They don't know each other intimately. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. You ever ask this question? Joseph tries to get rid of her. Put her away. Why? Why? He, he, he didn't understand a virgin birth, a virgin conception. He didn't. Immaculate. That's, he figured she did something she ought not to do. Why would that even be in the account if it wasn't true? See, that's, that's the way you come to Scripture, asking questions about why some of the stuff is even in there. She was overwhelmed when the angel came. How is this, hap- how, how, how is this so? I'm not married. Well, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the shadow of the Most High will. And that's what happened. So we have this problem. The virgin will conceive. This is the direct quote. And give birth to a son. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. Now we could go on and on and on and on and on. But I want to go in a different route. Remember the last week we talked about Micah? A lot of people say this to me. And, and I speak to lots of people about the gospel. And about Jesus. In very loving and kind ways. But people say, well, you know, this, this clearly the prophecy that you know, Jesus knew the prophecies. There's, there's, he could fulfill those. Surely he, he, was a, he, was, he, he knew the scriptures. So he, he knew he had to ride in on a donkey. Couldn't he have figured that out? Couldn't he have had that all set up? Sure he could. Sure he could. I'm sure he knew the He knew he had to ride in on a donkey. But then I say to them, riddle me this, Batman. How would you explain the immaculate conception where 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 did he play a role in that and then how would you possibly explain the fact that he was born in bethlehem what did he do in the womb to work that out they were in nazareth 
They weren't going to Bethlehem. So, again, Dr. Kennedy's great number of 333, three, and you can do the math on your own and you can work through it. The birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension. 333 prophecies fulfilled. It's overwhelming. To a reasonable, rational, open mind who will read. That's all. So know that. Now I'm going to give you something that's a little more personal. Just a little different way to go this Christmas for, for Advent. I'm going to show you something just a little bit different. Okay? Different prophecy. I want to go to Ezekiel. I want to talk about the temple. I want to talk about the sanctuary. I want to talk about who you are. What it means to be in Christ. Watch this. I will make a covenant. Ezekiel 37. I'll make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers. And I will put my sanctuary among them forever. Notice that. I'll put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Okay, so what's going on? What's happening here? We had the tabernacle, which was on the move. The little children of Israel are moving around, right, for 40 years, and the tabernacle is with them, and the presence of God is there. And once they found, got themselves into the promised land, now they have the temple. You have Solomon's temple. So God's presence was already there. So what is this all about? If he was already there. What this is telling us is that the presence of God in the Old Testament was really only a shadow of the substance of the Savior who was to come. Because remember, the presence of God departed in the Old Testament, yes? God left the building. But something was going to happen. Something that was going to happen that was never, ever, ever going to change. The presence of God would never, ever, ever be interrupted again. I'm going to show it to you from four perspectives. Watch this. This is so beautiful. You couldn't make this up. John 1.14. Notice the fulfillment of the glory of God which dwells, dwells in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the man Jesus the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That, that, the Greek word is, is tabernacled. Tabernacled, meaning tabernacle in the Old Testament. The tabernacle was the presence of God. So Jesus now comes to tabernacle with us as what? God in person. Okay? So you see the first fulfillment of the promise of Ezekiel. Okay? Now we're going to look at the second one. Watch the second one. <clears throat> John 2.19. What does Jesus think about this, this prophecy? Jesus answered them. Remember, he was messing with the religious leaders, and they're going back and forth, and Jesus says, okay, I got one for you. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And they say, what, what's the matter with you? It took us 46 years to build this, and you're going to you're destroy it and raise it in three days? What was he talking about? His body. So, so what now is the temple? What is the sanctuary that will dwell with us forever and ever and ever, world without end, amen? Jesus. So, so we see the first, but now we're going to make it more personal. But I want to show you something that is missed today. You want to know what's missed today in the church? Because we are steeped in a culture that is really defined by expressive individualism. Most Christians think that their salvation is all about them. So they use the phrase, it's Jesus and me. I want to show you something that there's something that's deeper than that. Your salvation isn't about you. In fact, I'll go further. Your salvation has nothing to do with you. Yes, praise God that you're saved. 
But it, 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 it's not about you. It's about him. And it's about something even deeper. It's about his people, his church, and the expansion of his kingdom. And I'm going to show you that in the process as we are getting to you. We'll get to you at the end, but I want to show you what happens in between. We have the glory of God who's come to us in Jesus Christ. And the word became, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Then Jesus says, destroy this temple. It's me. And I will raise it in three days. Now you're going to see the communal aspect. What you're doing right now. How important and how valuable it is to be doing what you're doing right now. I can't tell you how many people say, I don't need the church. If you're saying that you don't need the church to be saved, you're you're correct. Jesus saves. And you're saved individually, but you're saved to community. You were never, never designed to be saved and to be set off by yourself and to live in intentional isolation. Never. That is one of Satan's great lies. And that's the number one person that's on his list to target. And I have people say to me, well, you know, the church is so messed up. Welcome to the party. I just, I, I don't know, I, I just need to, I went to this church and I went to this church. I said, oh, so you're looking for the perfect church. Excellent. But here's the problem. As soon as you join the next one, it'll be messed up. Why? Because you are. The problem's not out there. Hallelujah is right. Where's the problem in the church? It's in here. You're the church. I'm the problem. You know, in, in second t- Titus 2.10, you want to know what it says? I, I didn't understand this early on years ago, but I, I get it now. I'll just paraphrase it. How attractive do you make God? Now, we know God is attractive all by himself, and he doesn't need our help. But do you know that the world is watching? And I made God look so bad for so long. I'm overwhelmed that my children are still in the church. In the years that I coached my my eldest son, I made God so unattractive. He saw God as an angry, impatient. It was horrible. I'm a whole lot older. I'm a little wiser. I'm not what I should be. But I'm not what I was. And I want God to be attractive through me. So there's the question. How do we do that? We don't do it individually. We do it corporately. Because we need each other. We can't do this alone. So I want to show you the passage that frames this out beautifully. 1 Corinthians 3.16. Watch this. Don't you know that you yourselves, this is plural, are God's temple. You. You. But together, collectively. And the God's spirit dwells in your midst. You're, you're living stones. And, and here's the challenge. In order to make the building, the stones have to come together. But when you come together, there's, there's friction. You know, it, it's the old story. You know the story that the, the, the two porcupines on a cold night, right? It's freezing cold and they come across each other and they huddle together because it's cold. But the closer they get, the more they're jabbing into each other. Just like you're doing to the person next to you. Just like I've done to you. So they, they it just, it's, 
too much so they separate. And they go off by themselves and they're freezing and just freezing. So they slowly come back together and they're poking each other and they're poking each other the closer they get but they realize I gotta stay here because I'm gonna die out here. I gotta take that pain. That's just part of life because we're broken. We're all broken. You know, people say, I love you, Jesus. I can't stand you Christians. I know, I can't stand them either. They're my sheep, and I don't... This is the problem. It's us. Doesn't it... Let's just be real for a moment. Doesn't it blow you away? I don't have a better term. I don't have a theological term for it. Doesn't it blow you away that God would choose you? If you know who you really are, doesn't it just, doesn't it just mess you up? Why in the world would God choose me? You know Paul said that. I'm the least of, I'm the least of all people. I'm the, least of the, I'm, I'm the chief sinner. How? He knew who he was. So we know we have to come together. And yet what? We're always rubbing each other the wrong way. And people go from one church to another church. Well, I'm not happy. I can't believe what happened. We're broken. That's why it's a family. You don't walk away from your family. You just work on getting through it. You know what I think the greatest goal in relationships are? And I say this to all of the people that I work on the pre-marriage class. One of the, one of the first things that I say, one of the greatest goals in, in premarital coaching that I do is to keep relationships from blowing up. Because they do. They blow up. We don't want them to, but they do. But we have to be willing to what? Keep huddling, no matter how much it hurts, because God has ordained us to be together. And then finally it becomes personal because it now it becomes all about you for just a moment. Watch 1 Corinthians 6.19. Do you not know that you, your body, is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? But that's at the bottom of the list. Yes, you're saved and praise God for that. But you're saved to community. You're saved to put the gospel on display. You're saved to be here, to be part of a body. And that body together, we are stronger together than we are separated and individually. We have to be together. It's the only way that we're able to even get through to the other side. With, with, any, with any reasonable way without being utterly just destroyed and so wounded we have to stay together so there's the picture of the temple that you're the temple we're the stones we're we're built up together and when we're close it's it hurts at times but that's what the scriptures say what did jesus say people say to me pastor i don't i don't see show me in the bible so they say again these are these are chat rumors and bloggers these are not scholars show me in the bible show me the line where jesus says i am god okay you got me you got me so i'll even tell i'll even here i'll bring out the greek and i'll show no you're right i can't find that in the original greek construction where jesus says i am god but he says it everywhere you have to know how to read the scripture. He says it everywhere. There's no place he doesn't say it. So I'm just going to show you two that are very, 
A little bit different. We see the typical ones. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, right? John 14, 6, and all the other things that he says. I want to show you two that are remarkable. Remarkable in understanding what he's claiming. What did he, did he have, was he a man with a, with a huge God complex? Or did he really know who he was? Let's take a look. Remember, remember in John, he, he says, that, he says I, 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 am, I am equal with the Father. He says, I am, right? That goes back to the Old Testament, the burning bush. Moses says, who do I tell him sent me? Tell him I am that I am. Jesus says, before Abraham was I am. Nowhere does he not claim to be God. But notice these two passages. I want you to see this. This is his first sermon in his hometown. He's a traveling rabbi. They hand him the fifth gospel. What was the fifth gospel? Yeah. Whoo, man, you guys are good. Jesus stood up. Luke 4. The scroll, there's that scroll again, of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Pause. That's deep prophecy. Right? Setting the captives free. Why was it so important for him to heal the blind? They knew what to expect. When Messiah comes, the blind will will see. The lame will walk. The captives will be set free. Captive from what? All of the different diseases and all of the different, even death itself. So he's, he's, he's doing all of these things. But now he goes too far in the eyes of the religious leaders. Because this scroll was read, to be sure, thousands and thousands of times. And the rabbi, they stand to read and they sit to teach. And I like that formula because I'm getting old and I want to start sitting to teach at some point. I don't know how long the legs will hold out. But they stood to read and they sat to teach. So now, then he rolls up the scroll. He gives it to the attendant. And the eyes of everyone is on him. He's sitting. What does he say? Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Do you hear that? Does he claim to be God? Okay, so now they've been waiting for Messiah. 1,500 years of Old Testament history, they're waiting for Messiah. So what do they do? They rise up and shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna! No, you have to go further. I didn't put it up there for you, but you have to go further. They take him outside the city and try to throw him off the brow of the hill and stone him. That was the end of his first sermon. I thank God they didn't do that to me on my first one as bad as it must have been. But they didn't even try to do that to me. They took him out to stone him. Why? It's too much. Think about this. How many times that that scroll had been read and how many times the rabbi said, one day, one day, this scripture will be fulfilled. And on that day, Jesus says, today, in your midst, it's me. Who did Jesus think he was? John 4. Remember the woman at the well? Remember what? 
there are so many beautiful stories in Scripture. Here's a woman. We, we want to be careful. Don't, don't ascribe evil to you. We want to be careful. He says she had five husbands. We don't know what happened to the husbands. The Scriptures are silent. You can surmise whatever you like, but I don't like to bring the imagination of man where revelation is silent. All we know is that he knew she had five, and the sixth one is not her husband. That was enough. What was the message? I know you. I know you. I know you better than you know yourself. He has a divine appointment with a woman at the well at noon. Nobody went to the well at noon. It was too hot. So we can, we can assume that she's scorned by the community. So perhaps there were divorces. We don't know. But she wouldn't go in the cool of the morning to get her water. So we can kind of factor that in. So she goes to the well. And who's sitting there? Oh, my. Good luck that day. Jesus just happened to be there. No, Jesus had a divine appointment. And he starts speaking. First of all, Jewish men didn't speak to women. No women. Certainly not in public. And a Samaritan. But he starts speaking to her. And then what does he say? Check this out. The woman said, I know, and we're waiting, that Messiah called the Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. What does she do? The very reason she came was to fetch water. She leaves the water jug and she runs back to town. She hid from the townspeople. Listen to me. She hid from the townspeople. That's why she came at noon when everybody was home inside. She runs back into town and she shouts. She says, come and see a man who knows everything about me. How could she possibly do that? She had been shamed by that town, whatever life she had lived. She would not be caught dead with any of the townspeople, and she's shouting, come and see a man who knows everything. What happened? When she went to the well that day at noon, she was naked and ashamed. When she went back into town after meeting with Jesus, she was naked and unashamed for the very first time. For the who of Christmas knew her and loved her in spite of her past. So now, how do we close? What do you say? Does it matter what the historians say? Does it even matter what the scriptures say? Does it matter what Jesus says? What do you say? You have to say something. You have to respond. No one can respond for you. What do you say? Let's go to that wonderful account of, of the disciples and Jesus, Matthew 16. Jesus asked his disciples, who, who do you say the Son of Man is? Some say John the Baptist. And by the way, he was with us at 9 a.m. this morning, just like we have Mary and Joseph. And when I pointed him out, you know what he, he, he did? Repent! And the whole place just... 
He was here. He was here. Some say Jesus was John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. We don't have an Elijah this year. We're going to get an Elijah next year. Some say Jeremiah. But, but now Jesus says, oh, no, I don't care about any of that. What about you? Who do you say that I am? So Simon Peter being Simon Peter, often with foot and mouth disease, but he always speaks up on behalf and always quickly. He answers for the entire group. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. Peter knew. And they all still ran away. But this is the great confession in Scripture. So now, I want to give you a quote, and then we will close. This is from a scholar who started out as an atheist, a giant at Oxford. And he said, if Jesus wasn't who he claimed to be, he had to be a liar or a lunatic or or something far worse. So certain was he that no one could seriously argue for those alternatives. Remember, this is a scholar. So certain was he that no scholar could legitimately, again, remember, when you're speaking to somebody who says, I don't believe, it's okay for you to say, okay, what do you believe? And then they tell you. And then it's okay for you to say, why do you believe that? And for the most part, most people say to me, just because. Hmm. A well thought out position. You're, 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 you're betting your entire eternal existence on. Hmm. It's okay to talk to them like that. I've had so many say to me, I've never thought through it. I, I just have always believed that it wasn't true. But why? Isn't it worth investigating? Isn't it worth working through? Well, here's a man. His name was Clive Staples C.S. Lewis. Atheist. Was tracked down by the hound of heaven. So convinced was he that his intellectual friends could not, with a clear conscience, could not argue that Jesus was a liar or a lunatic He came up with this response. This is his response to his skeptical, intellectual community and to the rest of the world. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. 
Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him, and you can kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. That's the way you talk to those who say, well, I believe he was a great man. I love the teachings of Jesus. I read them. I, I try to live by them. The golden rule, the Sermon on the Mount, and all of those things. No, you have to read further. This is what Lewis was saying. You can't stop there. You can't say he's a good man because Jesus didn't say he was a good man. You can't say he was a great prophet and teacher because Jesus didn't say he was a great prophet and teacher. He said he was God. If he's not God, he's not any of that. Throw out everything that he taught. You can't take any of that. Either he is who he says he is, or he's a madman. And when you talk to people like that and get them to start thinking about what it is they believe, you would be astonished at how they open up. Joe knows this on Thursday nights. Every Thursday night for 20 years, he's in the jail. Talking to people with preconceived notions of who Jesus is. And getting them to walk through the argument, why do you believe what you believe? I don't know, I never thought about it. Think! How did you arrive at that conclusion? When I asked this question, and, and this, is, this, is, this is a kind question. Have you ever read the book? Well, no. Why would I read the book? Same reason why I read yours. Read the book. At, at, least, at least give it a reading. And then talk about it. There's a lot of scriptures that you could classify under the heading of Sad, I guess. This is one that just is overwhelming to me. This one strikes me. Jesus is, the night he's betrayed, he has his false trials, right? Three religious and three with the Romans. He's with Pilate. I want you to see this question that's being asked. And I want you to see what happens. This is what happens today. Even if the question is even asked anymore, but this is what happens today. Ready? Pilate and Jesus. John, 19, John 18, 38. What is truth, retorted Pilate? With this he went out. He's speaking to truth. But he doesn't wait for a response. He never waited long enough to think through and to hear what Jesus had to say. And with that question... He turns and walks away into eternal destruction. What is truth? What is he? Is he a myth? Is he a man? Is he a Messiah? It really doesn't matter what the historians say. It really doesn't even matter what the scriptures say. And it really doesn't even matter what Jesus has to say. What really matters is this. Who do you say Jesus is? The one called the Christ. 
You're going to be asked this question when you get to the other side. What did you do with Jesus? With outstretched arms and nail-scarred hands, Christ says, come. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Trust in Christ alone. He is who he says he is. He did what he said he came to do. And now he awaits for you to respond by grace through faith, to trust in Christ alone for eternal life. You're going to bet your eternity on something you've never fully considered? Come to Christ. Investigate the claims of Christ. Evaluate both sides and come to your own conclusion. I think if you do, you will be overwhelmingly convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who was promised from long ago. Let's pray. Father, if there's somebody here right now or by way of the internet who has never surrendered control to Christ, we would ask that you would give the gift of repentance and faith, raise them from death to life. Oh God, the who of Advent is Jesus Christ, the one who came and took our place on a cross that we might have eternal life. Oh God, right now, Lord, we, we know somewhere, somewhere out on the internet, even in this room right now, we know there are some who have never surrendered control to Christ, never prayed, never bowed the knee, never gave the will. Just pray these words right now with me. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I know I'm broken and I know I cannot fix myself. I trust in Christ alone. And Lord, for the rest, help us to keep walking by faith, not by sight. And we'll give you all the honor, the praise, and the glory. And all this we say in Christ's name.